All right, so you're back for more, and you couldn't stay away from the eternal of hot takes. I'm Mr. Combo number five, obviously one of your mainstays over here at TMD Tower. Uh, you can always find me at Mr. Combo number five, I'll spell that except for five on Twitter. Uh, and of course, follow. make sure you follow our primary where we actually announce our streams and a lot of that kind of stuff at TMD Tower on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm SD Sharpie. You can find me on Twitter at SD underscore Sharpie and in the CMD Tower Discord. And I am Bosch and Roll. You can find me at Bosch and Roll anywhere. That's a letter N in the middle. Primarily YouTube. And kicking off, our first subject is Legacy versus EDH, where we always kind of talk about strategies or concepts that are popular in Legacy. And how does that translate to Commander? And we picked, I would argue... One of the more controversial mechanics in Commander, because when you run a lot of these, you immediately get labeled as a competitive player. We're talking tutors. Um, I, I looked up some stats that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, 733 legal tutors in Commander, 731 legal in Legacy. But I, I wanted to kind of parse that even further. 264 of that 733 is specific to lands. 22 to 26 is uh, the instant and sorceries. About 45 of them artifacts and about 215 creatures. So the, the thing I found the most interesting and uh, the area that I think we've all felt when you play a game of Commander and you Demonic Tutor or Vampiric Tutor or whatever, people are like, oh God, you just go to get your combo piece, right? Oh man. You know, you just you don't like, uh, you know, the, the singleton aspect. It's just it's a lot of negativity. Um, and but when I saw that, it's like, well, I mean, most tutors are either creatures or lands, if we're being honest. And those seem like the less broken aspects of it. So that was just like some initial thoughts that I had had. And I found that interesting. Uh, Bosch and Roll kind of talk to us a little bit about how tutors get leveraged in Legacy, especially since you guys can have four of in a deck, but your deck is only 60 cards. Yeah, there's basically two ends of tutors in Legacy, which are the toolbox tutor and the you're dead if this resolves tutor. And all the best ones are banned for starters. We don't get demonic tutor. We don't get vampiric tutor. We don't get mystical tutor. We don't have survival of the fittest. There's a pretty wide swath of all the best ones you'd expect like all commander staples that I just rattled off depending on your power level. And we can't have those. All of our tutors are forced into that. Either they cost three or more mana, like uh, Grim Tutor is, I think, the cheapest get any card that's legal. And that card's bad. It doesn't see any play at three mana. And the other ones are conditional or require some significant deck building setup, like uh, Green Sun Zenith. And crop rotation are wildly popular. They both have archetypes built around them. The lands archetype is built around crop rotation. Green cloud post built around crop rotation. I'm going to lump uh, Elvish Reclaimer in with crop rotation as a creature with crop rotation stapled to it. That's like a whole wedge of the format. And frequently you green sun zenith for Elvish Reclaimer to start <laughs> crop rotationing. Like that's a play pattern that exists. Uh, on the other end, you get. Uh, like Gamble, which takes some deck building to set up because uh, you need to either maximize the number of cards in your hand so your gamble's more likely to pay off, or you have to not care where the card ends up. Normally, decks that play Gamble play Echo of Eons, and they don't really care if the card ends up in the graveyard because that's where they're trying to cast it from anyway. Usually enabled by Lion's Eye Diamond. 
which dovetails into Infernal Tutor, which is the other tutor that gets played in Legacy. And to play Infernal Tutor, you need to be yeah. Hellbent. So you need to set up a board state where A, you're sure you're going to win. B, you're sure your opponent can't disrupt you. And C, you're Hellbent. And you have to win from Hellbent with this thing on the stack. Usually that ends up getting ad nauseum or past in flames or peer into the abyss, which should also sound familiar to EDH players at high power levels, but it's a lot harder to set up when you're playing against four force of will, some number force negation, flush storm, etc. cetera. Uh, those are the main tutors. Enlightened tutor is legal, but generally decks that play that aren't very good. It, it's mm. card negative and the payoffs aren't really there in the format. Most of the time, uh, it really is like a toolbox to keep up with blue decks in the green sun Zenith sort of wedge or a uh, you're over. The game is over to go over the top of everybody in like the black end of the tutors. And I don't know if we're counting them as tutors or not, but burning wish is also frequently uh, overlaps with uh, the infernal tutor wedge of the format. Normally decks are built for Burning Wish or they're built for Infernal Tutor and Wishclaw Talisman is kind of the bridge between them uh, where if somebody is playing Infernal Tutor, I'm like, oh, this is Ad Nauseum Tendrils. If they Burning Wish, this is the Epic Storm and Wishclaw Talisman leaves it up in the air. could be either one. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, SD, I mean, how do you kind of, you know, being someone that um, you have a little bit more experience in the competitive aspect of commander uh, than, than I myself do. How do you kind of feel we leverage tutors and in, in commander? And do you think it's pretty similar to how Bosch and Roll just described in Legacy? Or would you say we kind of do it for completely different reasons? Uh, I think for the most part, we kind of do it for the same reasons. Um, you have your more casual players that use tutors just to get uh, lands or a mana rock that they need. But for the most part, I think the majority of us are using them to either get a hate piece to shut opponents out or tutoring for that that combo piece to win the game. So I think for the most part, it's a lot like Bosch explained. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing I'd find interesting, uh, obviously... Uh, the the core of Commander is supposed to be a casual, free-for-all, community-based game, but you can play high power and, you know, uh, try to win. But also, at the same time, it's there's a lot of variation. And, and you know, you could play a deck five times in a row and maybe not even see the same cards in each of those games or in two of the games. Um, do you guys believe that there is any tutors that ever get leverage in legacy. That's just a, you know what? I have it in here, you know, because it, it's a, I guess toolbox would be the word. Um, I, I guess it's probably the best description, but I just kind of think of it as is someone putting a tutor in. Cause sometimes I put them in my decks and it's like, well, I don't know if there's anything specific I'm trying to get with this tutor. I just know that there's going to be at some point in the game that I need to figure out how to answer what my opponent has done. So it is a lot more modal for me, opposed to a very linear, this tutor for this card. Do you see that in Legacy, or is it very much, if you put the tutor in, it's because you're getting these specific cards, and there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it? Yeah, deck building is very different when you have 60 slots and you can play four of the best things. And it is not really a constructed deck building, or, or a 60 card competitive constructed deck building thing to just be like, I'll toss a demonic tutor in here in case I'm about to miss my land drop. Like that's just not how that works, but mm. it is how that works in commander. The one deck that I can think of off the top of my head 
that really has kind of a robust, fair tutor plan is certain versions of like NickFit, which is the Veteran Explorer Cabal Therapy Basic Land Ramp Deck. It's black green base, and then it can go in directions from there. Some versions play Living Wish, and it's just like, you know, sometimes you need a collector roof. These are in here. <laughs> and uh, usually they're also enabling like they have three Academy Rectors in the main, and then the fourth is in the sideboard because Rector is their combo. But in situations where you need like collector roof or endurance or or some such thing, it is just casually there. Um, Death and Taxes is an 80 card deck. Uh, and we're kind of going to talk about that in a minute here uh, with overlap. But Death and Taxes in Legacy is primarily built with Yorian as the commander now. It's an 80 card deck that does not draw any cards because it's mono white. And it is built heavily on Recruiter of the Guard tutoring up the things that are needed. So maybe that's more in the vein because the the three mana one one is not why they play that card and they're not really sure what they're getting specifically. So there are a couple fair options like that, but we would consider those toolbox decks rather than combo decks. I gotcha. All right. Uh, any other thoughts around tutors? Uh, I had a couple for Bosch. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts on were on cards like um, psychic surgery, or, yeah, psychic surgery and archivist of Agma. And like why maybe they don't see play in Legacy. Uh, you, fill me in on Psychic Surgery real quick. I know the um, Agma. I, I like that one. Psychic Surgery, I believe, is anytime your opponent shuffles their library, you can look at the top two cards and uh, exile one or put them back in any order. I believe okay. that's how that goes. Right. So I actually tweeted about Archivist of Agma when it was spoiled and the the thoughts of like, wait, is this the Death and Taxes staple for the for legacy out yeah. of the set because death and taxes players are always looking at any remotely playable white two drop. And my answer right away was no, because it doesn't stop your opponent from doing anything. It pays you out when your opponent takes natural game actions. It's it's Ristic study. It's not Thalia guardian of Thraben. And in legacy, you need to stop your opponent when you're the, the putsy little creature deck because decks are super powerful. Uh, I don't, if I'm storming out, Archivist of Ogma can draw nine cards. I don't care if those nine cards are all like Swords to Plowshares and Recruiter of the Guard and you're dead before you get to use your mana. And just, that's not really, I want to squeeze you first before I like get myself paid basically in the 60 card formats. Gotcha. Cool, cool. All right. Um, we are going to segue over to our counter meta discussion, but before we do, we would love for you guys to check out our amazing patron community, patreon.com slash cmdtower. We have lots of different options from a dollar on up. Anything you guys could do uh, really does help us improve. And just like you're seeing now, we were able to get overlays and we've improved our studio. And, you know, we're now getting uh, the different members of our team, you know, enhanced mics. So every dollar that you guys contribute really does go a long way. Patreon.com slash cmdtower. Now we're going to head over to the counter meta. And we're going to talk about death and taxes and, you know, see if there's maybe any tips or tricks around what that archetype is and legacy and how we can maybe translate that similar style decks and commander. So what I thought I would do, because I was so unfamiliar of what actual death and taxes meant uh, when it comes to legacy, I thought of it as like aristocrats type stuff. Uh, that is not the case. So 
Death and Taxes is an aggro-controlled deck. It focuses on playing fast creatures with disruptive abilities to keep your opponents off-balance until those creatures can close out the game. It's supplemented by mana denial for your opponents, an equipment package to dominate the battlefield, and reasonable removal sweep. So, uh, Bosch and Roll, why don't you kind of give us some insights about what Death and, Death and Taxes is in Legacy, and what are some counter-metas, to not be redundant, uh, that you guys leverage to combat those decks that we might be able to translate in EDH where it makes sense. Right. Uh, it's exactly what you said. This is also an archetype in modern. It's a lot more fringe there, but it can be played. Uh, all of the core cards are, or most of them are legal in modern as well, enough of them to make it work. But this is primarily an Aether Vial deck. Like what they want to do is stick Aether Vial and then use their lands to bother you. Like a lot of their land slots double as spells. If Aether Vile is advancing their board anyway, then they don't need to tap their mana. And then they can use cards like Wasteland and Rashadenport and Field of Ruin and Ghost Quarter and all of these things to just beat you up and keep you from developing your game plan. Meanwhile, Aether Vile poops out Mother of Ruins. So it's a use it or lose it situation on removal spells. If I spend removal on Mother of Runes, then I don't have that spell for the next thing. And if I don't, they'll just tap Mother of Runes and I can't kill it anyway. So they use Mother of Runes to flush out your removal. If it sticks, all the better. Then it's Thalia Guardian of Thraben or Stoneforge Mystic tend to be their two drops. Uh, in the last year or so, they've adopted Spirit of the Labyrinth as a four of three one. Your opponent can only draw or players can only draw one card per turn. That thing just bodies brainstorm bodies many of the staples of legacy that legacy is built around and thalia guardian of thraven legacy is built on the most efficient spells that exist if they cost twice as much as you expect them to maybe your deck falls apart a lot of legacy decks only play 18 to 20 lands if you're suddenly paying two for a brainstorm instead of one you're out of luck especially when wasteland and rashad and port and everything are beating you up underneath and they uh they just poke here and there they get you for two points here then they recruiter the guard then it's three points and then whatever comes out of the recruiter the guard makes it seven points and whatever they need for that situation the recruiter the guard package can get the stoneforge mystic to put the the gas on with cauldra or gain some life with batter skull uh, they can lock you out of drawing cards with the spirit of the labyrinth i mentioned they can grab solitude for removal there's just it, it's a robust package of all the most efficient disruptive white things that can also hit you for damage if you're not doing anything else wow uh i i, I feel like i've played decks like that uh in commander because that just sounds like a terrible time for the opponent um sd like what would you kind of qualify uh current commanders uh to a death and tax strategy because really i was doing my research and i felt like esper seemed to fit the death and taxes description the best out of just doing pure mono white. But, but what do you think kind of translates to legacy death and taxes and uh, EDH today? Uh, so for the most part, I don't think that the deck that death and legacy death and taxes version really translate to translates to EDH just because you can't rely on those lands to really shut your opponents down because now you have three instead of one. Um, and you don't get to run four ofs, so a lot of your hate pieces aren't as strong by themselves. Like, um, 
Dolly is still super good in EDH like it is in Legacy, but it, it doesn't have like your wastelands and your shot imports to rely on to really shut your opponents down. Um, as far as colors go, I think I mean mono white is definitely the 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 best one. Uh, I could see Esper or even green white. Uh, I think in EDH you're going to need a lot of hate bears a lot more to uh, really advance your game plan. So I could see green and white. But basically, you're, just, you're really going to need to rely on white, like uh, Legacy Death and Taxes, because a lot of your uh, key pieces, like um, Deafening Silence, uh, Rule of Law, Stoneforge Mystic, all that stuff is in white. Uh, as far as green-white goes, the number one I could, number one card I can think of is Gaddick Teague. He's a great mm. piece. Um, Collector Oof. Uh, you could probably do red and white as well, because then you, you have access to um, Blood Moon and Magus of the Moon. Uh, I don't know if there are any legacy versions that are red and white. I know there was some red and white uh, modern versions back when Modern Horizons 2 was, or 1 was out, I think, uh, that ran... Magus and uh, the the red and white land was a big hit for that deck that came out in Modern yeah. Horizon One. Yeah, Death and Taxes does splash red occasionally in Legacy as well. It's Murktide Regents World. We're all just living in it right now out in Legacy. So Pyroblast <laughs> is something that every deck wants access to. The traditional green white green sun zenith decks are Naya now. Death and Taxes is Boros now. It's just like kind of a you can argue about the health or not. That's been a lot of legacy Twitter discourse of is main deck pyroblast a sign of an unhealthy format. And uh, we're not here to discuss that luckily, but yes, dipping into red is, is part of uh, what, what they do as well. And if you cannot make red mana, you might as well put Magus of the moon into your recruiter package, just pop it in there. And everything you said about death and taxes, not translating smoothly over to EDH is right on the nose. Uh, the EDH language for this is stacks. It's yeah, just white yeah. stacks. And yeah. like you can't wasteland because you got two other players who aren't down a land and you and the person you wastelanded are. If you're Rashad and Porting, you're down two mana to put someone down one and two other players are just developing as normal. You need global effects like that Stony Silence, like that Null Rod, like that Archon of Amiria. And that's just not really how Legacy Death and Taxes is constructed. Yeah, I, I can absolutely see that. Like the the first deck that actually came to mind for me is the more we talk about it is Lavinia, uh, Azorius Renegade. That mm -hmm. seems like a perfect translation, like a Gaddic Teague. That would be a uh, legendary that you would actually run as your Death and Taxes commander. Uh, because really, the only way to win in that deck is to literally resource denial everyone, and then maybe approach of the Second Sun or get your opponents to quit. I mean, that's kind of the running joke I do with my Lavinia deck is uh, I, at the time, there was nothing Azorius I wanted to build. So I was like, well, I'm going to build the meanest deck I possibly can. And uh, literally, my playgroup knows, well, he has no win unless we just concede. And so, uh, and that's usually, and probably the reason there might not be a perfect translation, is that's another thing like tutors that have a very poor reputation among the commander community any type of stacks, any type of tutors, immediately you become the uh, anti-Heliod and people want nothing to do with you. Right. Uh, and I think that even at casual tables, I mean, we could talk about CEDH where mono white stacks actually did top for a major event earlier this year in a way that we're talking about. Heliod was the commander. Mm. And I believe 
that deck was only defeated in the final four pod by Magda, which is also a monocolor stacks deck with the moons and the rods and everything. And was just sort of like built to play in the same sandbox that Heliod was and oh, edged funny. it out. But uh, I think that at a casual table, even at lower powers, I, I do think the person showing up with like rule of law and deafening silence, it might be kind of not encouraging fun, but if you have something like a Yasharn in your green sun Zenith package, is that the name of that green white pig? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the I correct think so. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, that's a four drop. It advances your game. Cause you get to search for a land and the, the stacks aspect is light. It's like players can't, pay life or sacrifice permanence to do stuff basically it's like mm-hmm. all right, come up with a removal spell you could still make your land drop you can still cast spells there's just certain things you can't do and like angel of jubilation has comparable text that's uh one white 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 three three other non-black creatures you control get plus one plus one and players can't pay life or sacrifice creatures to cast spells or activate abilities like that's gonna bother your local rectos player but your green, white, and blue players are just going to push through. So I, I think some moderately costed light squeezing in a in a toolbox type situation is perfectly fine at a, a lower power. That's fair. All right. Anything else? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the best way to translate death and taxes to EDH is just really relying on um, a Voltron strategy. Like get you a Voltron commander deck and then put your light uh, stacks pieces like your Sharn and you know if you're in blue and white like Lavinia and stuff like that and just really lean heavy into the um, combat aspect of the deck and lessen the uh, resource denial uh, I think that would be the best way to build death and taxes in EDH so well yeah. the funny thing is the way you just described that you just described my bird of prey commander Eshet I, I was gonna say like you, that deck is probably pretty pretty um, pretty definitive of a death and taxi edh deck so right and uh the really the best advice i can give for beating decks like this is to collapse their pillow fort like normally it's like spirit of the labyrinth stopping us from drawing uh stony silence is stopping the artifact mana leon and arbiter stopping the fetch lands and, and it's just like once you crack one of those pieces open it's like all right the spirit's gone brainstorm now i have an answer to the the arbiter once that happens, I fetch my three fetch lands that have been waiting this whole time. And now I don't care about a stony silence anymore. It just uh, crack the armor and get yourself through on one axis. And then like you could flood your way out and pick off the next one by one was uh, make sure you have a plan for when you break through the wall and make sure that you could get through the next wall as well. Awesome. Well, guys, uh, Hope you picked up a thing or two around death and taxes. And before we go to our last segment, we would love for you guys to check out our amazing Etsy store, Etsy.com. Just type CMD tower in the little search bar at the top and you'll find the great shop with all the swag. And we are coming up on winter and we do have those ugly Jun sweaters uh, that you guys wanted. So you guys should go out, buy them. Uh, Once again, it'd be great if we could sell a bunch of stuff before M30 because uh, me and SD were not counting on just to play Commander having to spend $350 a person. Ridiculous. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Well, it's why you guys are here. It's time for Council of the Unbanned. And today, we're talking probably the biggest victim of the ban list ever. I mean, yes, Paradox Engine's close to my heart. Yes, 
I own a Shield of Emeria. I, I shed a tear for. But why Panoptic Mirror? They got the ban. I just will not understand. So if you guys are not familiar with this card, it is five colorless. It's an artifact. Uh, it is legal in just about everything except for Commander. And it states, imprint. You can pay X colorless, tap. You may exile an instant or sorcery card with mana value X from your hand. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may copy a card exiled with Panoptic Mirror. If you do, you may cast a copy without paying its mana cost. It's only been printed once. Uh, the copy still goes for 8 bucks, even though it's uh, legal in a lot of areas. But through my research, it doesn't get played a whole lot. And I just, you know, wanted to bring up some, some facts about our boy Panoptic Mirror where, you know, people have just been a little unfair. Uh, did you guys know that there are four other cards that do similar effects? But one could argue possibly even easier. I mean, a very good example would be Soul Foundry, four colorless imprint when it ETBs, exile a creature from your hand. Then you pay X, tap, create a token that's a copy of the exiled card where X is the converted mana cost of the card. Still get to keep it. So, hey, Crater Hoof on that thing. We're Crater Hoofing every single turn. Well, I don't know. That seems a little bit unfair. Uh, everyone's familiar with Isochron Scepter and, you know, uh, just going infinite mana with that. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely fair as well. And then, you know, we have like Spellbinder and Prototype Portal. So there are cards in existence that do similar type of things where you imprint to get the thing for free or, you know, be able to pay the cost. So you get to repeat it. And when I look at this, it costs. Let's just walk through it. We're going to cast it for five mana. It has to then resolve, which means people no, do not counterspell it. Uh, we then have to pay X, tap it. Hopefully there's no stony silence or things that shuts off artifacts. Exile, because the reason is the extra turn argument. If you have it and it's an extra turn, you could basically take infinite turns and then you lock everyone out of the game. Well, you have to first exile that spell, pay the mana, wait the rotation, then hopefully no one blows it up uh, because even the argument of, well, you don't have to do it main phase, it's like, well, on your turn, it's like, yeah, but still people can interact with it. So it has to go a full rotation around the table. Then you get your upkeep trigger, the trigger's on the stack, that could be disallowed or countered. Then the spell gets cast, the spell could be countered. It's just, I see so many like magical Christmas land-esque things for you to get to your infinite turn. And yes, once you get to that point, you're off to the races. You're going infinite, you're going ham, you're doing all the stuff. But you just have to have a lot happen to get to that point. And then I wanted to kind of highlight, and I mentioned it a little bit, it's not even played in the other formats that are a lot more linear. One opponent versus three, plus singleton rule, and you would have to be a hyper-competitive player to really want to do that. This isn't something that just people are going to do by accident. So I think the fact that we have similar cards that do similar effects, I think the fact that you have to have this magical Christmas land-esque kind of uh, domino effect, and then even the more competitive formats do not play this card. So those are the reasons I'm giving to unban Panoptic Mirror. Uh, SD, do you agree with me before we go and hear our judges' thoughts, or do you disagree and why? Well, first, I will say it is not the most victimized card on the ban list. Um, but I am in complete agreement with you. Uh, there's no reason this should be banned. Yeah, let's go. 
Um, for all the reasons you stated, um, you have valuable points. E- even the extra turns bit, uh, it is so much easier to go infinite with extra turns than using this card. Uh, I would argue that the Scepter is a lot stronger than this card. Um, and honestly, there are a lot stronger things that are already legal in the format that we see all the time. Uh, I will die on the Thassa's Oracle Hill. That that needs to be banned. Uh, nothing on the ban list is stronger than that, except for uh, maybe Hull Breacher. But <laughs> that, that's how I feel about it. Uh, I didn't play Magic when this was printed or if it was ever unbanned in EDH. Uh, if it was, I could see it being really powerful, say, 10 years ago. But uh, not now. It's it's just wasting away on the, the ban list for no reason. So completely Ooh, agree with you. I, yes, <laughs> I love it. Uh, Bosch and Roll, what are your thoughts on Panoptic Mirror and the justifications that SD and I have given to get this off that damn ban list? I think that your all of your thoughts skew towards higher power tables. This would be a joke in CEDH. You'd never see it at high power, like max power, non-CEDH, whatever you want to call that. You're right. The three other players at the table are going to channel a Besaju. They're going to you know, cast a, a wear tear. They're going to sweep this up somehow. I don't know, spell pierce it on the way down. Like, get that thing out of there. Mana drain it. Give me my five mana on my, up, on my next main phase. Like, let's do it. Uh, but unlike a card like Thassa's Oracle, where you don't put Thassa's Oracle in your deck. Most, I'm sure there's someone out there who's just like, I'm a mono blue merfolk deck. It has blue, blue. I get to look for a card. Like th- that, that person's out there. But in general, if you have Thassa's Oracle in your deck with a way to exile your deck, like Tainted Pact or a Demonic Consultation, you know exactly what you're doing. And that was part of the plan. And you are playing at a high power level and or pub stomping, and you should feel bad about it. But panoptic mirror is innocuous like all of the arguments that you guys just made are the arguments that would be made by someone who just pops it in their medium power casual deck and let's like run through it like the most innocuous use of this card is just like rampant growth so like every turn i get to pop a land out of my deck and what what that does is thins out the deck you're getting an extra card anyway. It's like a planeswalker's worth of value right away. Like you get to activate planeswalkers once per turn. You get to pop a spell out of this thing once per turn. Eventually they're going to run out of lands. And at some point, all those lands are going to tap to put something bigger under the mirror, which, you know, maybe we see that coming and that's a pretty fair use. Like the second most egregious thing, like a removal spell at these low power tables, the type of tables where a panoptic mirror would not be answered those aren't really flush with removal anyway. So players, like if I just pop sh- swords of plowshares under this and I'm just every turn, just like nice eight drop. Like, oh, you worked really hard for that. You drew that. It's gone every single turn. That's a boring, repetitive play pattern. It's the problem with tutors that we already talked about in this episode. It's the same eye roll that when someone demonic tutors for their thing, it's just tutoring for the same spell every turn. Repetitive game states suck is the answer to that. Now let's pretend it's not source of pleasures. What if it's damnation? Like no creatures ever. Boop, boop, no creatures. Every turn, no creatures. That thing better have haste or indestructible because it's gone on my turn. Uh, that sucks. Let's crank it up a notch. Demonic tutor under that baddie. You get a draw step and whatever you want every turn for the lowest mana we've talked about yet. And then 
that all escalates to time warp, of course, which we've already addressed, which is just literally GG if you untap with it. I just think that even if you put no time warps in your deck, this is the type of thing that a casual player who's just like doesn't understand the crushing boringness of just damnation every turn or just like concentrate every turn. Like you're just drawing four cards a turn or, or uh, opportunity, like you're getting five cards a turn. This is less of a problem the more powerful your table gets. And I think it is, we got to talk about like who needs to be protected by a ban list because it's not the CEDH players. They want like, give us everything, like let it rip, let's party. <laughs> it's like, it's like that person who bought a pre-con and wants to have fun at their LGS and seeing this thing is just going to ruin their life. And uh, I think that Panoptic Mirror is in the same sort of range as Hallbreacher, where it's like the things that just naturally overlap with a Hallbreacher that make it unreasonable. Like you don't even have to put Time Twister in your deck for Hallbreacher to kind of ruin an experience. The Panoptic Mirror is in that sort of range as well. I, I just... For, we've talked about a lot of truly broken crap on this show, like Tinker and all of, all of that stuff. We've really just cracked the knob off at 11. I don't think this is cracked off at 11, but I think it is awful at mid to low power levels. And I think it would be a reasonable plan at like medium high power. I, I know the out of 10 scale sucks, but like blow a seven. I think this thing's a problem. And even like an eight could probably sculpt a game plan specifically around protecting this for one turn cycle. Like, I, I just don't think that, like, who who's using this in a way that is reasonable? And the answer is nobody. Well, argument there, you could definitely do some fun things with it in non-spellslinger decks. Like, imagine, like, uh, I mean, it's not fair, but Overwhelming Stampede. It's like, hey, I'm going to throw that under there, and I'm going to, like, stomp people out every turn. And so the, the one thing I wanted to kind of poke a hole in your argument, Judge, uh, you know, we, of course, hailed you. Um, is you just use the argument of source of plowshares. Like, oh man, how much does that suck? Well, that's kind of in the same realm as what we talked about in Death and Taxes. Like, you have three opponents, you can't wasteland everyone, because you, you, you know, go in that example, you go down a land and they go down a land, but the other two people were unaffected. Well, in this, you're going to source the plowshare, and you're going to get one creature. You're not going to get the entire board or one for each opponent. So I think the I think that's where on the lower power deck scale, I think it's fine. You know, you have rampant growth. You, yeah, it's a whole lot of ramp, but there's easier ways to ramp than waiting for your upkeep for a rampant growth every turn cycle. Uh, there's a lot more broken ways to get your lands out uh, on the removal. It's still only one creature. So it's like, yeah, I got rid of your eight drop, but the other two players also played eight drops this last rotation, and I'm just going to take it in the face. So that, that's kind of where I would disagree with those. Yeah, the Demonic Tutor is the most egregious of it, but I, no one at a pre-con level that's, uh, let's just call them blissfully ignorant, they aren't going out and buying a Demonic Tutor. You know, they, they see a card that's, you know, $30. So they're like, what? I paid that for my pre-con. Get out of here. They just haven't been exposed to the financial hardship that is Magic Gathering. So I, I still think it would be your more seasoned players that would do it but genuinely i think this would be fun to run in you know like a uh gruel deck like my uh rook thar oh man that'd be kind of sweet 
like put something to, you know kind of weird or gross under it and then i get to do that every turn and then it's the flip of the coin am i going to take six life because i casted a, a non-creature spell uh or is rogue not going to be there and i'll get to do this effect so i i think it actually and we all love the whole upkeep thing in edh like oh man at the next upkeep i win the game and then what happens someone like destroys your world and you're like up. Oh, well, that was fun for three turns while I wished and dreamed. I, I just see this card kind of fitting more in those lines. Um, SD, do you have any last thoughts from you before we get a final potential ruling from Bosch? Hold up. Let's pause. Uh, I uh -oh. would like to just respond gently to your, your rebuttal there. The best part of Magic the Gathering is your draw step. Like that is the thing that people are excited about. Like it's dynamic information's about to change. The game's about to change. You can win or lose from a draw step and doing the same thing. Predictably every upkeep is just bad magic. Like it, it's not fun for anyone involved except for the person who's popping off and EDH is broken. The that's like stated straight up at the top of the ban list on the RC web website. They're like, this is broken. You could break it if you want. We just clip the big things and hope you follow our lead. And Panoptic Mirror is, it, it just makes for bad gameplay at every level. And it's like to your gruel point, when I was thinking about Panoptic Mirror in prep for this episode, I pulled up my Jund deck. Uh, I have a Jund deck. The spells in which are Crux of Fate, uh, Kodama's Reach, Damnation, Green Sun Zenith, Cultivate, Primal Command, Rishkar's Expertise, Artifact Mutation, Assassin's Trophy, Beast Within, Bedevil, Force of Vigor, Golgari Charm, Heroic Intervention. Those are all of the spells in that deck. And among them, like Green Sun Zenith doesn't function under Panoptic Mirror. Kodama's Reach and Cultivate are kind of nutty to start, but will run out of gas. But any other one of those being fired off every upkeep would be a bad time. Like the whole point of playing at a casual level with no tutors or low tutor counts or conditional tutors is that you have this dynamic changing gameplay where you can shuffle up three games and only see a few of the same cards among the players. And Panoptic Mirror just cracks that entire dynamic in a way that just can't be healthy. Like, I, I just I don't see a situation. I, I'm not into it. Right. SD, give us your final thoughts and we're going to go around for the vote. Um, I gotta agree with Bosch a little bit there. He makes valid points. Um, you're probably not going to do anything nice with this card, but at the same time, I, I circle back around to your argument in, in the, the, the phases and steps that it takes to use this card. There's a lot of windows for interaction. There's a lot of chances to disrupt this card and this might be a hot take, um, but honestly, people don't run enough removal. And we talked about the guys coming in with precons and stuff. Precons come with removal. You should be playing removal. Even at a very casual level, you should still be playing removal. Uh, this this card could run away with the game, yes, but it could also just try to imprint something and immediately get blown up. Uh, I, I'm still on the train of it needs to be unbanned. Uh, but that's that's mostly because I just really like cool stuff in EDH. I mean, if you do something really cool with this card, I'm cool with it even if I lose. Uh, to agree with Bosch, I think a Demonic Tutor every turn would get annoying, and I'd get kind of frustrated with it. But overall, uh, I'm going to stick with, with uh, what I said earlier. All right. Well, I'm obviously going to unban this because it is uh, absolutely unfair that it should be on the ban list. Uh, just, you know, we have multiple things that allow us to imprint and play stuff at reduced costs or free or 
allow us just to abuse it and reuse it. Uh, I think, you know, just like SD mentioned earlier, Isochron Scepter, I full-heartedly believe, is stronger than Panoptic Mirror. Because um, literally, if you play it, you can win on the spot. Uh, versus Panoptic, you have to wait a turn. Or cast an extra turn spell, play Panoptic Mirror, do another X. I mean, it would take like a 20-mana investment to be able to do it immediately. So I, I just think there's... The, the more holes um, and opportunities that interaction have on a card for it to be successful, for it to actually do its thing, I think that's healthy. And if it happens, like SC said, run more removal or quit waiting for your opponents to do it, or at the bare minimum, just bite the bullet. I see too many people that are like, I'm, I'm one of them. Oh, I don't want a board wipe to get rid of this problem something because it's going to hurt my board. So maybe someone else will figure it out for me. And then I lose and I'm all pissy because I could have dealt with it and I didn't and nobody else dealt with it. So um, I say unban it immediately, henceforth. Bosh, I believe we know what the judge is going to say. Both your uh, prosecution and defendant are agreeing to unban it, let it out of prison. What are you going to say? Uh, you know my answer. I, I think that the all the comparisons drawn are faulty. I think Isochron Scepter does not win the game on its own. It wins the game on its own with a specific card that you chose to put in your deck and three or four other mana rocks that you chose to set up along the way. Spellbinder's got to connect. Uh, Soul Foundry, you got to pay every time, not just up front. It's a lot more mana to get that thing rolling. I think every comparison you've drawn is false. I think the floor is too low for this thing to break a game. The deck building onus is too low for this thing to break a game without the person even realizing they've done it. I think that's the scary part. You don't accidentally put Thassa's Oracle Tain Impact in your deck. You could totally accidentally put Panoptic Mirror and Damnation in your deck. So the bar is too low. Uh, we can't be trusted. Chimp with a machine gun. <laughs> Keep those things separate. <laughs> Keep it banned. Oh, want, want, want. Well, before we wrap up the episode, everyone, uh, we would love for you guys to check out abyssproxyshop.com. Uh, use code CMD Tower. Just make sure you aren't getting play tests of Panoptic Mirror because apparently it's going to be on the ban list forever. Uh, but you can get some high quality proxies on there for as little as three bucks. And I think the ceiling's five. With our code, you get 10% off. There's free shipping. Uh, these guys are great. And the very cool thing is while SB, myself, and Big Tuck are going to be in Vegas for Magic 30 this year, uh, we have actually worked with Abyss Proxy Shop. We're going to be handing out CMD Tower play tests of command tower um and on the back it's going to have our joint qr code so you could uh you know be able to like look up our link tree and see all the info in there so you just got to make sure you find one of us three and either a beat us at a game show us a very cool deck or i don't know maybe just like fun conversation buy us a cocktail I, you know I'm, I'm pretty easy so uh just uh go support them at thisproxyshop.com using code cmd tower well thanks for getting sweaty with us and remember, if you're looking for more fire content, check out the rest of what CMD Tower puts out. I'm Mr. Combat Upper 5, and you can find me at our Twitter, and make sure you follow our primary at CMD Tower on Twitter as well. I'm SD Sharpie, and uh, hit me up in the Discord. And I'm Bosch and Roll. You can find me at Bosch and Roll everywhere. And remember, cold takes are temporary, but hot takes last for eternity. <laughs> <laughs>